Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Jim Rooney, and this is Toe the Rubber with Jim Rooney. Episode 326 on our network today. Can't believe we've gotten that high so far with our podcast. Have an, an awesome show for you today revolving around workload, but before we get to that, want to just thank our, we're closing in on 54,000 subscribers right now, grassroots MLB front offices, 74 countries represented. We appreciate your support. Make sure that you are giving Jim five stars today. Write some nice comments underneath there because we do battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in Major League Baseball. And let's continue to let iHeartRadio know that they made a great selection with Choose the Real Voices of the Game and all of our podcasters to join their very powerful podcasting network. We got a cup in the coffee, a cup of coffee in the bigs about a month ago, but it looks like we're here to stay. So, and uh, a lot of that has to do with you, Jim, and, and your great shows every week. So we thank you and welcome back to your show. How you doing, Dave? Doing good. I was excited to see your notes uh, as we trade notes back and forth to, to kind of get to pitching workload because we're we're hitting that off season time now for young kids, and it's important for them to have daily, weekly, monthly, and and because there's, I think they're passed around so much with all these different pardon the word, gurus out there that they need to start being their own pitching coach in a way. And I think your show does a lot uh, to help the kids become uh, that role in their lives, but also the parents uh, really trying to govern their children and be the first educator in this stuff. So I'm excited about today's today's show. And we talked a little before the show about uh, learning. We were talking about your golf and, and uh, an incident I had uh, with one of my clients the other day with uh, revolved around chess. And I won't go deep into it and I won't share who it is because I keep that stuff uh, keep it quiet for them. These high level learners like to don't let, like let people know they need help. So, but uh, the, uh, the different stages of, you know, unconscious, uncompetent, you don't know, you're not good and you don't know you're good. And then you reach that comp, uh, conscious uncompetence where you, you know, you start knowing what you're doing, but you're still not good. And that conscious competence is where most kids strive to get where, um, you know, they, they know what they're doing and they're good at it. They're, they're hammering the principles and that fourth stage of unconscious competence where we've hit that flow state where we're kind of the, the space between the notes, so to speak. I had to post on that on Facebook today, but you were sharing a golf story revolving around that as well. Yes. Um, I mean, just something from my past that actually turned out to be pretty funny um, when I look back at it. But So I had played golf my whole life left-handed, but then after my, uh, my accident, I had the shoulder surgeries. It just wasn't any fun anymore. So I have a, a brother, Mike, who's 15 years younger than me, and uh, – he started to play golf. So up in New York, you'd have to be with an adult. So I went with him and would drive the cart around. And one day I grabbed his right-handed club and hit the ball. I think it was a pitching wedge and ball went straight. And I thought, uh, wow, on one end, I was scared to death of missing the ball. And all I thought of was, you know, keep it simple, strong front side, get down through the ball and uh, hit it pretty good. So I started playing golf right-handed. So I have a, my old catcher in uh, high school and college, uh, Billy Ashford, who's a professional uh, golf teaching pro down in Boca Raton, Florida. Now, he was starting his golf career at the time. So I hung out with him one summer, and I, I actually got pretty good playing right-handed, uh, playing golf right-handed. I would still, different aspects of the short game and putting, I would still do left-handed. And I started shooting in the low 80s right-handed. And then I thought I was ready to make that jump, and I was feeling real comfortable. And you start thinking you're going to manipulate the ball. You start going, thinking you're going to advance things, and sometimes you then forget about the uh, the fundamentals. 
that really got you there and you jump ahead trying to skip some steps. Um, a lot of times it happens because you don't necessarily know what the actual steps are, but, um, uh, and, uh, you know, next thing you know, my, my low eighties is turning into high nineties because you're all out of whack and you don't know how to get back there because it's not a natural thing for you. Yeah. That's uh, we, we had chatted. That's, uh, that went through the same thing. It's a little concept, thematic interconnectedness where you're, you're high level, very high level at one thing or in one capacity, or in this case, same sport, different side of the ball. And you try too early to push those skills at thematic uh, learning onto the other side um, too early. There's a, there's a, there's a nuance to it, but I thought that was important to share today because you, your, your talk today with our audience has to do with workload. And these kids are striving for that conscious competence. They're trying to get great at the principles, try and understand the nuances of every little bit. And, um, I thought your story was, was cool to share because you had reached that level on one side and, and uh, it's okay to be a beginner. And a lot of these kids, when they come to you, you know, they may be good at one sport, but they're coming in as a beginner and there's failure. There's, um, so to, to pay attention to the, the, the steps along the way is really important. So I appreciate you sharing that story and not to sidetrack us again, but we have a world series is all set now, Arizona and, and, uh, Texas. Uh, did anybody think, in fact, you and I joked about it, that the, the, the TV audience would, or the, the media would probably be so pissed out of Texas, Arizona, because it's not a sexy uh, World Series there. They're probably going crazy right now. Yeah, you know, I, I I watched a little bit of the game last night, and then because I'm a big hockey fan, my New York Rangers came on. Oh. And so I, I switched over to it. And, um, you know, just the, the limited action that I watched last night, um, the thing that impressed me, not that I get to see the Diamondbacks a lot, is um, whether you want to call it small ball or whatever, they executed basic fundamentals. They stole bases. They ran the bases well. Bunted. They bunted. Uh, the, the young kid, Carroll, is a heck of a ball player, all-around ball player with some pretty good tools. And, uh, you know, they played baseball, and they played a tight well-played baseball game. And, uh, I mean, that's all you can ask for. Um, you know, I think, uh, all Yankee fans out there will understand, uh, when you live and die by the home run and there's a lot of strikeouts and home runs, uh, the Phillies can go on a, a run where they're hitting home runs like crazy and winning games. And people are like, well, oh, they're unbeatable. And then next thing you know, the last two games, they didn't really hit much. Uh, right. You know, point, though, when they were doing well, they were moving the ball around the field as well. When they were winning games, they were, um, they always had guys on base, the pressure of the pitcher and the defense to, to have to protect the 90 feet. And, uh, you're right on the money Eric. That's You didn't, you said you didn't watch much of the game, but you, you encapsulated the game pretty, pretty clearly. Um, that's what they did for nine innings. Say they, they just chipped away and, uh, did the little things in baseball. Even the announcer, I, I love that the way the announcers, I think Darling was the, the broadcast I was watching, but was talking about, uh, old i hate to use an old school because it's they were using fundamental baseball say look it's back it's stealing bases like you said moving guys over hit and run hit and cut off men that's what playoff baseball has become uh, in this offseason i'm glad the teams that are in it are being rewarded for doing exactly what you described uh, playing baseball in that space between the notes right and you know i couldn't tell you who the arizona pitching staff is I mean, the kid last night's a rookie. I don't, I don't even think he was up in the big leagues more than a couple of months. 
No, he, and he's a, what did they say? Brescia University, which is a newer D1 down in Kentucky. Yeah. Harold, a good, good size kid, though, 6'4, um, strong kid. But yeah, he's a rook. He's a 25 yeah. year old rookie. But I'll tell you one thing that makes your pitching staff a lot better when you're one of the top defensive teams in the league in all of baseball, and that's what the Diamondbacks were this year. So, uh, yeah, you're right. You know, uh, play some defense, play the game the right way, and uh, sometimes good things will happen. Yeah, that's amazing. It doesn't have to be super hard. And with that, let, let's move into your. You, I, I love the notes on it. I, I actually copied it to my computer. I'm going to read through it with with my two boys today. But the the workload today of, with the off season, that's what's a daily, weekly, monthly, and then a season long workload program. So I'll let you kind of get into that. Yeah, the reason the topic became uh, forefront in my mind this week was because we're coming to the end of uh, of the fall travel ball schedule, so to speak, and and even. In towns like Fort Mill, I'm sure in towns in uh, all around the country, you know, you got the fall ball, you got the rec league or the little league or the whatever league, senior league, big boy, Babe Ruth, whatever. And everybody's playing fall ball. The schools even uh, uh, have a, a fall ball set up that's not directly associated with the high school or middle school, but they play fall ball on, a, a I guess, a, a shorter scheduled kind of travel team, if you would say, and uh, had a couple of young guys come in. They've been uh, clients of mine for a couple of years. They're not necessarily the frontline pitchers on either of their teams, but they do pitch and they've been doing pretty good. They've been handling themselves pretty well, feeling what they're doing, being part of the process, not trying to overthrow and not trying to try too hard. Um, but in both instances, the first one was, in both instances, you saw a spike in their workload. And even if it was just a weekly spike. So the first individual, his uh, rec team went to the championship game and they asked him to pitch. So because it was a championship game, they, he said that he would pitch. And he pitched well. So he pitched that game on a Monday. And now this guy's used to pitching. He didn't pitch regularly on his rec team. He pitched on his travel team. So he's, he's used to pitching once a week. Very rarely did his travel team um, have him pitch, you know, two or three times on a weekend, which was very beneficial for him. So he pitched the, the – uh, he pitched – Two innings on a Saturday on his travel team, came back on Monday and pitched six innings in the rec league. His team won. He, he dominated the action. Then came back the following weekend and pitched a complete game shutout. So for a guy that on a weekly basis through this season in the fall was pitching two to three innings a weekend, he then went and pitched within a Saturday to a Saturday, pitched two, eight, 15 innings. So he comes to me and he says that uh, for his session this past week, he was going to you know, do some more hitting. I said, okay, great. And he says, yeah, I'm doing hitting because my arm's a little sore. So as I say to all my 
the people I work with, I, you know, I'm not a doctor, but, you, you know, since I do know the body and the different things from my experiences, you know, I know where the bicep tendon is located. I know where the UCLA is, you know, and different areas where it might be stiff or sore. And sure enough, it's just that there was just a tremendous spike in his workload. So that was the first case. The second one involved three different pitchers. They all moved up to the big field. They're 13 years old, moved up to the big field for the first time. Um, all of them started introducing throwing curveballs uh, as their third pitch. And we had gone over the fact that, you know, your fastball, if you're going to throw two fat, two different fastballs, two-seamer and four-seamer, your changeup, and then your third pitch could be your curveball. You're basically using it to show a show-me pitch. I call it a teaser or a tantalizer. Throw it to the front of the plate and, uh, and pitch with your fastball. Well, when they moved up, they now have uh, new coaches. Uh, new pitching coach, new head coach for the uh, new team. And all three of these teams, the um, guy to handle the pitching, they became a little bit obsessed with um, slide steps. So everybody's slide stepping. Guy gets on a first base, he's slide stepping. The fact is, is they don't know how to teach them how to slide step correctly. I know we're, we're visual. Can you give a couple of just key points on slide step? Well, the key. Oh, we're not visual. I should say we're audio. Yeah, the key with the, the slide step for uh, all players, but young players especially, because, see, young players are more susceptible to different changes in workload because they haven't physically matured yet to handle uh, larger workloads. So what I call a chronic stress, which we can adapt to, sometimes becomes an acute stress, which it's tough to, tough to get through. So with the slide step, what a young player usually does is when you're in the stretch and you're going to pick your knee to your chest, um, not to your chest, your knee to your waist, let's say, very similar to your wind-up, but you're in the stress, in the, in the uh, stretch. You're used to the movement to home plate being started by your front foot, picking the front foot off the ground. And we can even have an audio trigger, a verbal trigger, where we go knee up, ball out, knee up, ball out. So even in that process, knee, knee up insinuates that, you know, it's the foot's coming off the ground first, and then the knee's up and the ball comes out of the glove. Well, the difficulty with the slide step or any variance of where you're not picking your knee now up to your belt, if that's the way you normally do it. If we keep the first move based on our foot, our hand's going to be laid out of the glove and then laid into throwing position. So to do the slide step correctly, the move should be initiated with the hand. Because obviously we've shortened the time in which the foot's going to be off the ground because we're looking to quicken our delivery because there's base runners. And the, the arm now is continually late. Right? If the arm's continually late, the body's going to self-correct and make an adjustment 
and shorten up the arm action because it doesn't want to continually play catch up. And now a pitcher that had a nice medium arc with his hand in the back of his arm action now turns into an elbow, what I call an elbow dominant pitcher. And it's the elbow goes back because the hand's laid coming out of the glove. And then if the elbow goes back, the elbow is going to come forward first. And then we get back into the uh, catapult action. And now we're adding different stresses. So the three individuals, they had a couple of things going against them. One, their coaches wanted to slide step almost every time there was a guy in base. They didn't teach them how to slide step correctly. So their arm is continually late. That becomes a new movement pattern in the back. They become elbow dominant. They then lead with the elbow that causes that catapult pushing action out front, which is more stressful than the regular throwing action. On top of that, they're attempting now, the coaches are calling more curveballs because we're running into those classic example of pitcher gets into the third or fourth inning, starts to get a little tired, and next thing you know, the coach starts calling all curveballs because he doesn't think he has enough fastball left. Now, throwing the curveball through the shorter arm action, all, right, all the stresses are completely different than his normals. So even though you might not say, similar to the first example, we had a workload spike of three innings a week to 15 innings a week, we have a workload spike as far as the stresses used in the throwing because the arm action has changed. And... Uh, in two of those cases, the, the dads came up and they hadn't necessarily been on my schedule all summer because they're playing in two different teams and they travel and they go on family vacations. And he comes back to me at the end of the fall and says, ah, oh, something's a little out of whack here and everything. And we go and then I got to go back to square one with, uh, you know, reproducing that quality arm action that they had, you know, being, let's say, if we want to use, if I use the term elbow dominant, they're called, you know, I call it free the hand or your hand. Your hand initiates all the move. Um, so it's the hand back and the hand forward, not the elbow back and the elbow forward. Um, so those those were two, exa two examples, four different pitchers, but two different examples of a, of a spike in workload. And so you're, you're explaining to the parent, you're explaining to the player why some of this stuff happened, okay? Um, the main goal with all of them was that they really were having, I'm not going to call it minor soreness, but they're having soreness where they hadn't experienced it before because of the either change in the arm action or the definite spike in the, uh, in the workload. Now, the thing that the definite spike in the workload brings is that young man most definitely, even though he pitched well, there were some times he was in a fatigue state and then the body's going to adapt and then you, you throw the ball a little bit different, right? Or maybe you try a little bit harder and there's a little bit more effort in there because you're not feeling as, uh, as fresh as you did when you usually pitch. The first thing I try to do is let them know, listen, you're going to be fine. You're okay. But this is why these things happen. So when you get through explaining to them, you're like, my my mind, my thought process is like, well, you know what? This is a, this is a topic that kind of follows last week. Last week we spoke of uh, max effort, force velocity, first perceived velocity, and um, the reasons why we go down either path. We talked about the cult of velocity. And uh, 
it kind of leads into then workload because after dealing with those young players this week, um, an old friend of mine that we've done a lot of work together in, uh, in the past in different seminars and clinics and, and uh, conferences on, you know, why do pitchers get hurt? Um, it's workload, it's intensity, it's a lot of different things. It's the biomechanics, it's the age, uh, and all the things that we've discussed in the past. Um, we, uh, we caught up with each other this week, and he was always working in the model of how to prevent injuries or explain why injuries happen. And uh, now he's moved on to a new project that in upcoming podcasts, I'm hoping to have him on and we can discuss it with him. But his mindset is that, in his words, I'm paraphrasing, you know, we've, we've kind of moved past the biomechanics. We've kind of moved past to try to prevent injuries. They're going to get hurt. Surgical procedures have improved. Rehabs have improved. They'll be out a year and then they come back. Um, everybody throws 96 now. So it's just a matter about, you know, harder, faster, and a lot of interchangeable parts as far as interchangeable pitchers. And I said, uh, well, I can understand that model on the pro side because we've spoken about that in the past, but, um, you know, going back to Vinny Perez, if, if an orthopedic surgeon up in New York is doing 25 to 30 Tommy Johns on teenagers a month. Uh, th that stuff's got to stop. And his answer was, well, I agree with you, but here's the thing. They get hurt, they have surgery, they come back a year later. It, it's just, it's just, that's the world we live in now. So that made me jump in my thought process to the individual who stated that I, I respect them. And he's at the forefront of, of, a lot of what's going on in professional sports and to see that his thought process and his mindset has changed. Like, you know, it's inevitable. This is what we're dealing with. Um, that was kind of a tough pill for me to swallow because I'm thinking about all the young kids out there that, you know, as I've stated in the past, you know, if I won the lottery, I'd have I'd have a free clinic, so nobody would experience what happened to me happened to them. And now to just say, well, it's inevitable; it's going to happen. Um, we're just glad we're better at fixing them when they're broke. That's uh, that doesn't work too well in my mindset. So, yeah. my question to that would be: Who benefits? Yeah. Some, with that that drastic mindset shift, where we're just saying, "Hey, to heck with it." It's inevitable. It's not inevitable. Um, but yeah, that would be my question, I guess, to myself and then out loud, who benefits from that shift, that drastic shift. But that, I digress here. Go ahead. No, but so it got me to thinking. So I, I put together what I call a, a schematic of uh, workload intense, intensity paradigm. And uh, it's based on an analytic model. Uh, with all my experience in, in development and then on the scouting side and dealing with the, uh, the analytics and their thought process and, and how their, uh, their mind works and the things that they're looking at, um, 
And then you start to see it in Major League Baseball currently. So you don't have you don't have to be a genius to see that uh, starting pitchers nowadays they pitch less innings at higher intensities, higher pitches per inning, higher walk rates, higher strikeout rates, and higher miss swing and miss rates. Everything is max effort, so it falls into what we discussed last week: force velocity. Um, and the fact that we're not dealing with perceived velocity when they look to make an improvement, like, Oh, I'm throwing 96. I need to be throwing 99. They're not thinking about all the ways to repeat your delivery, to execute, to move efficiently, to create the force and get it to the ball, to add late life to the ball, to increase your spin rate, your extension. A lot of times it's just more effort, you know? get into the weight room, lift some more, get stronger, more effort. So we go deeper and deeper down the path of uh, force velocity. But the result is, and Dave, you, you had brought this up in prior episodes, the increase in the major injury rate that needs major surgery and the increase in DL days is just off the charts. Yeah, we spent a billion dollars on injured players in the major leagues this year. I think 65% of it was on pitchers. Right. Now, we're going to come back to that, that cost that you just said, because this is where, remember, even if this current commissioner believes that uh, more people are watching baseball, more people are going to baseball games, his whole, uh, in my opinion, his whole uh, goal was to increase the casual fan. and because then there's more of them out there and there's a larger market and we're going to increase revenue, which, which is fine. That's his plan. But if we're spending more money in one area, we're going to have to spend less money in another area. All right. And so let's just look at starting pitchers in, in the major leagues. As a result of all this, um, Workload versus intensity. Pitchers become less expensive, less valuable, and more interchangeable. Okay. And they're utility guys now. Yes. So because of that, we have less need for quality coaching and instruction and player development. No room for personal decisions or opinions uh, on workload, on analyzing or um understanding what workload is so that when a pitcher's pitching in a game and you're watching all the different things and biomechanics and fatigue and other things like that, execution of his pitches. And we make, I mean, the old, the old story from Jim Palmer was uh, uh, a very good pitcher makes adjustments, you know, from year to year. Uh, a major league pitcher makes adjustments from month to month. An all-star makes adjustments from week to week. Um, A Hall of Famer, you know, makes adjustments from inning to inning and even pitch to pitch. Well, we, on a biomechanical side, you don't see any of that going on anymore. Um, Throwing the ball efficiently, throwing the ball properly, uh, it's a thing of the past, you know, as of this date. So then... Why stop at player development? 
if all these pitchers are interchangeable and they fit a mold and really all we have to do is see their velocity, you know, and their other analytical uh, data that we can collect, we got less need for experienced evaluators to make personal decisions on throwing mechanics, pitching deliveries, body types, et cetera. So there's two ways that we know, and it's documented now how, you know, uh, many of the highly qualified instructors and evaluators are now out of baseball. But we, we, you know, we, we got a lesson on our cost somewhere. Um, and then we, we go back to what my old friend said to me the other day. With the improvement in sur- surgical procedures in rehab, this creates an environment of rotate them in, rotate them out. If they break, send them to the doctor. They miss a year. And after a year, they're back to work, um, hopefully. So that's the, that's the analytical model that I see going on in uh, professional baseball currently. Um, here's, here's something I would be concerned about if I were a pitcher, if I'm a starting pitcher, or a, a budding professional pitcher, as I'm watching it become acceptable for workloads to be reduced in terms of game innings, like, you know, four and a third, uh, you know, in all the development and in this, this newest thought of, Hey, they're going to get hurt under, anyway. Um, Surgeries are better. Let's blow them out, get them back. I would fight against that because I, I take a look at the running back in the NFL and their market got marginalized because of a similar pattern. And now running backs are treated like utility in the NFL where they used to be. They called them the bell cow, right? That was give them the ball, let them go. 20, you know, they wanted 30 touches a game. Now these, these, this once great position, this one's driving force behind football is, is out. And, you know, they're, it's hard to get a guy, uh, multi-year contract anymore and the money is minimal whereas you know the other positions are becoming more prominent but baseball i see the pitcher going down the same route yes i'll I'll give you an example uh pittsburgh steelers had um bell at the time he was probably thought about as the best all-around back in the nfl he could run he could catch he added everything he he was an insane like 60 to 70 percent of their offense and over the course i don't know the dates but over the course of three four five years whatever it was they used them till he was used up and then he left went to the jets he was never the same you know besides some other you know personal problems and different things that also affected him but you see that in the starting pitchers now um you you, you see that without a, without a shadow of a doubt um, you know, um, I, I'll give you an example in baseball. Um, my old team, the Milwaukee Brewers, they have a dilemma this year because coming up in this offseason, because uh, Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff, I believe, in their, are in their last year of arbitration and then they can become free agents after next year. So on one side, Woodruff has started to experience shoulder problems for the first time in his career. And Burns, since his Cy Young year, he's still a very good pitcher. But if you analyze video of Corbin Burns from his Cy Young year to before, to this past year, 
I think you'll be able to see that he's gotten a little bit heavier, especially a, lo- a lot thicker in the hips, which was the natural tendency of him when we first saw him pitch in college. If you compare his college video to his video of this past year, you'll see that he's not getting down the slope as much as he did during the Cy Young year. So the Brewers being a small market, I think the only guy that they ever re-signed um, was Ryan Braun. I mean, they didn't re-sign Prince Fielder. You know, a lot of the guys that end up you know, becoming studs on the field, then after when they first hit free agency, they were, they were gone. I mean, look, they traded Josh Hader last year. Um, I think if there wasn't so much blowback from the clubhouse and the fans from trading Josh Hader last year, that Woodruff or Burns would have already been traded this year. But that's just a, you know, a, an opinion. But the the problem is that under this model, um, this analytic model, um. Even the guys that, for the most part, those two pitchers have stayed relatively healthy. You know, after that, if we're going to resign them, um, no, we're we're already we're already used them up. You know, so the likelihood we resign them is is low. Um, and and years ago, Scott Boris used to say the true value of a major league player is if his club resigns him when he becomes a free agent. That's how he he judged in all his different models the true value of a player on the field. Uh, he goes anybody can anybody can play under their rookie contract, so to speak, you know, in those arbitration years. But when they start either making record money in arbitration or go to resignment, if we don't resign them, so on the pitching side, <coughs> excuse me, you can start to understand how these guys are looking to reduce the importance of the starting pitchers Um, because one, they've eliminated a lot of the experienced evaluators. They've eliminated a lot of the quality coaching uh, on the feel repetition, execution, efficiency, perceived velocity side of the equation. So in doing that, it's very difficult to develop starting pitchers for the big leagues. Um, even you go back 20 years, you, you know, you've heard many people say, hey, you can get a good, you can get a good pitcher. Pitching comes from anywhere. You can get a good pitcher in the 10th round, 11th round. Well, Woodruff came in the uh, 11th round, I believe. Um, you know, Burns was fourth round. You don't necessarily have to get a pitching in the first round. There's a lot of pitchers there that were drafted late. Um, but the point is that, the more interchangeable they are, we don't have to worry about a lot of these different factors in development and scouting and, and other areas. So you use them up while you have them. Um, their workload, while their innings are less, I would venture to say that their workload is more because you have more high-intensity innings, more high-intensity pitches, more pitches thrown per inning. Um, which brings us right smack into workload. 
for the amateur player, for the amateur coach and the parent of those players, <clears throat> the keys to understanding workload is that workload <clears throat> goes from annual to seasonal to monthly to weekly to daily. And even if you want to go all the way down to per inning, right? Many times I've gone and watched an amateur ball game and while on one side of the equation, you'll say, well, he's not really producing a great amount of force that it's a high intensity. Well, you leave a young kid out there for 35, 40 pitches in an inning. I was just going to say that. I mean, that's, that's total disaster. That's chaos waiting to happen. Um, you see a lot of that. Okay. Now, let's say a pitcher throws, he goes out for his first inning, and he throws 37 pitches. But somehow he recovers, and his second inning's a little better in the third. And that coach is saying, oh, he's settled in. He's, he's, he's looking real good. He's good now. He's good. And then they continue to pitch him, you know, because they're looking to win that game. Well, that 37 pitches in one inning is, for a lot of young men, that's a whole game. Like, if you look at the pitch smart guidelines of how many pitches that you should throw in the different age groups and the whole thing, you can't sit there and say, well, he's only supposed to throw 45 pitches today. Oh, he threw all 42 of them in, in one inning. And then think that you're going to bring them back the next day in these tournaments. On my end, I'd say, listen, this kid needs like three or four days off. All right. And we're going to do some changes in his weekly schedule that we're going to talk about. So the sam sample and example of a weekly schedule in pro ball, it's a, you know, five day rotation in amateur ball, you know, even college ball guy pitches once a week. So it's seven day rotation. There's days in there that there's the game day. There's his recovery day, his bullpen session day. Of course he has his throwing program, his long toss, his rotator cuff work, his stabilization work and his in season strength work. So if we're going to go to, uh, I'll give you an example where a young man, uh, high school pitcher, um, their program says that, you know, they can throw 95 pitches a, a start. Okay, that's what they're going by. And he's throwing a no-hitter or it's a tight one nothing game and he's pitching awesome. And next thing you know, he's at 105 pitches. And we do have a pitching coach or a manager, head coach that's monitoring him and he's doing it efficiently. And he's, you know, so he, he feels comfortable that he went over based on his expertise. Well, he might need two recovery days of getting the blood flowing, getting the lactic acid out, you know, recovering before he picks up a baseball. Right? He might need one. Each person is a little different. But we now have to change his workload to the other things that we mentioned. So personally, I would take his bullpen, which I like to throw 
two days after the game. So it's game, recovery, bullpen, especially on a five-day rotation. On a seven-day, you could keep it there as a light bullpen and then throw another bullpen two days later before his next game. But let's say it's one bullpen. So wherever you decide that bullpen is going to be thrown, if he normally throws a bullpen of 40, 45 pitches, I'd take him down to 30 pitches. Why? He just he just had a lot. He just had a spike in his workload in his last start. Um, besides that, I might tell the strength coaches if if you're in that type of setup that uh, let's let's lessen the amount of rotator cuff and stability work we do over the course of the next five days. I might take. Uh, some of the upper body exercises out of the strength work, you know, depending on what the spike in that workload was for that game. And this is how we then monitor. So we take the principles, the old Russian principle of annual periodization, and we start to logically apply it to a weekly schedule, a monthly schedule, a seasonal schedule. Um, you know, you've seen them in the past in, in Major League Baseball where a guy might have uh, two pretty pretty strenuous starts where he's pitching deep into a game and the pitch count is up and he's working out of jams, and they then might, on his third start, give him an extra day rest, okay? That's one way to monitor workload. But um, you have to look at it, and you got to balance things out, and you got to balance, you know, well, what's, what's important for that pitcher. Um, if he's a young a young guy, the most important thing is for him to probably do his, his throwing program and his bullpens. So we might eliminate uh, the type of exercise work that he does during his week week in his program. Okay, um, We might skip a start. And then if we're skipping a start, we might increase some of the off-field activities that he does. Uh, that's all the things that have to be monitored when you're dealing with workload. Um, one of the things that's helpful, not that you know, I'm, I'm pushing it. I mean, I, I used to do work with Modus. So when they sold the company to Driveline with the Pulse workload monitor, uh, it's being used religiously by a lot of organizations and a lot of um, uh, clubs on all levels of amateur and professional baseball in Tommy John rehab. Well, if it's good enough for the Tommy John rehab, why don't we turn the, as Vinny Perez said a few weekends back, a few weeks back, um, we're good. At, we're, we're very good at surgical procedures. We're very good at rehabilitative processes, but we're not really focused on as a coach, as an institution or as a player the preventive side of the nature of the, of the thing. So if, if pulse, if the pulse throwing monitor works well for the rehabilitation side and the monitor workload currently, I mean, I guess there's some other people with that technology now, but it monitor, it, it's a band that fits on your elbow and then the motion sensor monitors um, the workload placed on the elbow and the shoulder, more specifically the elbow. Um, with these, you had mentioned, uh, that, you know, the inning where a kid goes out there and throws 30 plus pitches and how that affects 
is there a way to mimic that in a practice setting? Is it even safe to do that um, in a practice setting? So that way a kid understands, okay, I'm going to go through this at some point in time in my life. Here's how I handle it. Here's how I get through it. The body's been through it. The mind's been through it. Is, is that, is that, can it be done? Is it healthy to be done? If it is, what kind of precautions have to be around that kid to make it safe? Okay. The question is, yes, it can be done. The problem with the answer, yes, is that it does take a quality, qualified coach or instructor that has the experience of visually monitoring workload, effort levels, and all to then attempt to um, slowly apply the chronic stress so that the body can adapt to it. So yes, we do things, for example, take a spring training model or an on-ramping program to get ready for the season. You might start off throwing a 15-pitch bullpen, bump it up to 30, bump it up to 45. It's a gradual process. You even think of big league pitchers, starting pitchers, their, their first appearance in spring training, they throw an inning. Um, I like to keep the model on pitches. So you go out and you throw 15 pitches, 15 to 20 pitches your first time out, 30, 35 your second, 45, 50, 65, 70, 85. All right. And that's the course of your starts. It's just following a model of applying chronic stress that can, that's not too much that the body, that individual's body can adapt to um, and grow. The problem with the answer, yes, is we do have coaches nowadays that their thought process says, well, listen, there's going to be a point in time in the, in the game that you're tired. You have to learn how to deal with fatigue. So they end up making a pitcher have an extended throwing program, extended long toss program, extended exercise program, all before he gets on the mound in the game or for his bullpen, and then says, you're going to learn how to pitch with fatigue. Well, that's a dangerous model to follow, especially if the coach is not well-versed in someone monitoring the effort level and the workload of, of that individual. Okay, so we're dealing with fatigue, but now our throwing mechanics go right out the window and we'll go back to the couple of young men at the beginning of the conversation today. All of a sudden, they become elbow dominant, and they start the catapult action pushing, and that's going to double the stress on the elbow. So while we're learning to deal with fatigue, we're now taking the chronic stress that might be placed on the elbow and turning it into acute stress, which sometimes can't be recovered from, or it's going to take a while to recover from, or... The real downside is now we're injured. Um, so I'm not a very large proponent of dealing with fatigue on the mound. I think there's all types of ways in your exercise program, in your periodization schedules that you 
adapt through chronic stress, you recover correctly, and then you move on, and there'll be improvement. I think the blatant, blind, okay, I'm going to get you in a fatigue state. Um, you know, I mean, just think back to the stories of uh, off-season conditioning with Bear Bryant and some hot place down south and the whole thing. And now look at what the uh, off-season conditioning schedules of NFL players are. Okay. Um, you know, back then it was, uh, you never had a water break. Now you have water breaks. You, you know, so what I'm saying is that to just blatantly say, I'm going to run you into the ground until you're fatigued or throw you until you're tired. And then I'm going to put you on the pitching mound and you're going to execute your pitches. That's a lot to ask of a young ball player. Um, they have trouble executing efficiently how to throw the ball properly when they're in a completely fresh state, let alone now we're going to add this fatigue. Um, and the one thing I'll add to that is, There's coaches that have applied this philosophy to people that are returning to the mound after Tommy John or major surgery. Just because their therapist or their doctor has released them and they've done their throwing program and they're feeling good, why are we – first of all, the, the main goal of that person that's coming back from injury is to relearn the proper throwing mechanics um, – you know, the brain has rewired the neuromuscular system to avoid the pain of when he was injured. So now we have to rewire it because if you send the same messages uh, to that person as he's completing his throw, throwing program after rehab, some of those same messages aren't going to work anymore. So we have to rewire that system to do things efficiently. So if we're attempting to acquire a new motor skill and to learn something efficiently, we're not going to do it in a fatigued state. But yet, I know of high school pitchers out there currently that they follow this fatigue model and they think that they're making their guys tougher and you're going to battle. And, uh, and this is on the physical side. And, and that player, even the physical therapist and the doctor has recommended, no, that player shouldn't do that. Um, but, you know, we do have individuals out there that I guess are smarter than the rest of us. Yeah, we got to bring them on so we can have a chat with them here. Yeah, live on the air. There was, um, and I don't want to skip steps. Was it? Was there a, a story that related to that with with Gallardo? Yeah, I can. Um, what's funny to me is when 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 you when you first take a pitching coordinator job and you start understanding some of the things that go on. Um, you realize that a lot of times it's it's about putting out a lot of brush fires. Uh, sometimes you're spending a lot of time catching up to the problems instead of being proactive because there's so many brush fires going on from the people that work underneath you. And then the people above you are like, what's going on? Why do we have a problem here? Um, so what I used to try to stress in uh, with my pitching coaches is that all right, here's the structure in which we're going to throw. So at the time, uh, Giovanni Gallardo was in high A ball, 
that uh, Brevard County in Florida, Florida State League. And uh, I think it was a little past the halfway point of the season. And I was not present. I was at another minor league uh, game at another level. And I get a text message from the pitching coach. Hey, Gallardo's throwing a no-hitter. He's in the uh, seventh inning. Um, But he's got uh, like 85 pitches. And I said, okay. Well, thanks for the text. Keep me posted. Um, And I would say that he was scheduled that day to throw a max of 105 pitches. Next thing you know, he finishes the eighth inning, and he has uh, and he has a no hitter, and he's up to like ninety eight pitches. I get a text, and now I'm I'm watching it on the minor league baseball app. You know, I'm not watching the game, but I'm you know the box score of the game day kind of stuff, so I can see what's going on in the game. So I get a follow up text. I still got the no hitter. Yeah, I saw. How's he doing? He's doing good. What's your thoughts? Because I had told, I had continually worked with the pitching coaches on what's the intensity level been? What's the workload been? Has he had to have max effort? Has he had to pitch out of jams? How many, has he had an inning where he's thrown 30 pitches? What, what, what's the game like, you know? And he goes, no, I think he, I think he's doing all right. He's, he's this and that. I said, can I send him out for a ninth inning? I said, yeah, send him out for the ninth inning. So, got out in the ninth inning, I think with two outs, he gave up a hit. And he finished with like 109 pitches. Um, so, the following five days, we cut back on some of his rotator cuff work. We cut some of the workload in his bullpen. And we monitored him. Uh, we made sure he recovered from that uh, so that he was ready for his next start. Um, it all fell into line. But the thing was, is that that pitching coach had learned to be pretty efficient in knowing his pitchers and understanding their deliveries from the videotape work we did and the different analysis, understanding, you know, velocities, velocity ranges, different things like that. Um, when you want to talk about max, uh, Max effort or perceived velocity. We spoke of last week where, you know, on average, an average pitcher, there's a, if he, if it's 90 out of the hand, it's at least 10 miles an hour slower as it crosses the plate. Uh, so whether the, whether it's that, you know, model, uh, uh, 10 mile an hour drop off, or whether it's the guy that's extremely efficient, that it's only a six to eight mile an hour drop off. We know what it is. So if all of a sudden he's in the seventh inning of a game and the peak velocity is similar uh, to what that individual throws, but now you see that the drop-off is 12 miles an hour and where it's usually eight miles an hour, well, we know that we're getting into a little bit of forced forced velocity, max effort. We're going to monitor that. We're going to add it all up. We're going to we're going to see. And this pitching coach was very proficient in doing that. So when he sent me the text, I was pretty relaxed and calm. That you know, 
Gallardo is going to get a shot to see if he can throw a no-hitter, and we, we take it and adjust from there. Um, the flip side of that is because of uh, – and it does. this doesn't matter whether it's a, an analytic model or, or, or any other model you want to call, whatever, that you use in player development. The difficulty becomes when some of the things we talked about where all of a sudden you have uh, less in the way of quality coaching, uh, less in quality instruction. Uh, you don't leave any room for personal uh, personal decision-making or, or personal opinions on what's currently happening, you know, right there at the ball game. You end up with a lot of... Uh, a lot of coaches that um, I'll give you an example. So every spring training, you have a morning meeting and we go over the assignments and this, this is on the uh, minor league side and you go over the assignments, <coughs> excuse me, you know, what coaches are throwing batting practice here, what go there, what players are throwing bullpens, where's the schedule. You just go over the daily schedule and make sure everybody understands, all the coaches understands what their assignment for the day is, all the coordinators, the instructors, how we're going to flow, the time schedule, and the whole thing. And um, you would go over in depth what everybody had to do. And then that meeting would be over, and I would keep my pitching coaches behind and meet with them for maybe another 10 minutes just to reiterate what what the goal of the day is, what we're doing, what your responsibilities were. So we basically have gone over with the pitching coaches twice. And then you ask them, is there any questions? Everybody understand what they have to do? No questions. Everybody understands. Okay. We break, get ready to hit the field for the day. And you'd have one or two pitching coaches standing in the hallway waiting for you to come out and then ask you directly, what exactly do you want me to do today? And the reason being is that whoever they had worked for in the past or whoever maybe was um, higher up than me had created an environment where they did not want to make any mistakes. And Dave, you're a basketball guy. Sometimes I, I use the simple analogy of you're playing high school basketball and the second you make a turnover, you're sitting on the bench. Well, that creates an environment where nobody wants to make a mistake. So nobody then does all the things that they're supposed to be doing that right. they naturally can do. And um, so when you when you see the environment of, of coaches and instructors starting to go down that path, and we've taken away the ability for them to make individual decisions and, and different things um, and taking all thought uh, and experience out of the equation, we're, you're not going to move in a positive direction as far as developing these, these players. I mean, there's the stories. Go ahead, Dave. No, I said, or the coaches. It's uh, the dialogue that you had with that coach during Gallardo's no-hit bid. There wasn't just an arbitrary number where you guys absolved yourselves of responsibility. There was uh, obviously much higher level proficiency in coaching, uh, really got deep into the 
the abilities and the strategies and the techniques that have been taught to Gallardo. And then you guys observed and watched and, and made an educated professional decision based on your, your experience and your experience in particular with that young man. And that's, that's what's lacking today. We've got these arbitrary numbers that just people like uh, the conversation you mentioned earlier on where, you know, the, Hey, the, uh, surgery is going to happen. We're going to max them out. I mean, to me, that's, that's disgusting. That absolves everybody of responsibility with that individual. And there's going to be no growth with anybody around that person. And it's, uh, I think these stories have been very, really well interconnected. And even though we're not a visual show, they've, they've showed our audience just how workload and, you know, and diving into it deep, not just setting up a pattern to say, you know, here's a cookie cutter approach. Right. And the one last story I have is, um, this is the difficulty in creating the environment where um, not only do players, but coaches want to improve and want to take responsibility and be part of the process. Um, so I'm in a, I'm in a major league meeting and um, the medical coordinator, the head athletic trainer for the organization is making a presentation on when rehab pitchers go down to the minor leagues to make their rehab starts. And one of the A-ball teams was relatively close to the major league team in, in location. So a lot of them, you know, let, let's say the guy missed the start because they had a sore back or there was something needed that they want them to see a little live action. Um, it was very easy for the guy to get in the car and, you know, an hour away, he could pitch in a ball game. And the, uh, the head medical athletic trainer is going over the different things and he makes a statement. He says, now, listen, you guys are all professional baseball pitching coaches. You were there at the game. You were watching the person pitch, you're going to write a report on what you saw that day. And you're going to explain how the day went. <clears throat> this is all standard stuff that we've been doing. If <clears throat> I say the pitchers to throw 30 pitches today, well, I'm leaving it up to your professional judgment to understand, he might go out and throw 15 pitches, max effort, never repeating, coming out of his delivery. It's not a good day. Get him out of the game. On the flip side, he might be throwing phenomenally. Everything's flowing. Things are being done the proper way. We've sent you video. You've seen what he looks like when he's going good. You've seen what he looks like when he's going bad. And I don't expect text messages or phone calls or in the report after the game uh, that he threw 22 pitches when I said he should throw 30 pitches. And your reasoning is that you just you didn't want him to go over, even though in your report you just explained that everything was outstanding. Send him out for the, the next inning. And if it turns out he throws 34 pitches, get him out at an appropriate time. Make a decision. You're professionals. All right. 
And the insanity of, of that conversation is that as things turn to the analytic model and we're taking all of these um, personal decisions out of the equation, um, we then get what we get now. I mean, there's stories of minor league pitchers never, never throwing more than 100 innings as a starter before they get to the big leagues. Brings me back to the old Rice University story. Three starting pitchers that are all going to be drafted in the first round. So their junior year going into it, their decision was to not do any work so that they do, didn't get hurt. <laughs> all three of them in their first year of pro ball had to have major surgery. Um, you know, it's just sometimes common sense, you know, is what's best. And I do realize that in the amateur baseball world nowadays, a lot of volunteers, a lot of different um, coaches giving their you know quality time to try to help kids out and may not have this experience and may have questions. But instead of just blindly doing what you're doing, just ask someone like myself or or do some research or 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 get to know your pictures or just try to move in the direction that you're doing what's best for that individual player. And if we do that, I think uh, there's enough resources that people can learn what's needed to, to be done. And I know it's time consuming in different, in different ways, but, uh, and, and you're only a volunteer or, you know, you're a high school coach and you're only being paid a stipend of uh, $1,200 for the season. You know, I, that's that's the way it is, right? That's the world we live in. But for the sake of those young players, make an effort to understand things like workload and throwing intensity and, and different things that are that are beneficial for their long term success. Yeah, I think that's a great message. And again, nobody's making these. It's it's wonderful that they are volunteer, and it's wonderful that they're taking a, a stipend to be there for the kids. But that shouldn't absolve themselves. That shouldn't absolve them of the necessary work to keep these kids healthy and enjoying themselves through the process. And if they think it takes a long time to research, sit down and figure out how long it takes for that kid to rehab, and uh, and see if that's that's worth the time and energy to put in to create a safe environment for them. So, how do you want to leave the audience today? I know it's a great episode. We kept you for over an hour today. Well. Um... There's different details as far as periodization schedules and throwing schedules and weekly five-day rotation, seven-day rotation, workload. Um, you know, and a lot of that is, uh, you know, how to build a chart, how to how to uh, keep records, how to make adaptations, um, which are a little difficult to explain, you know, through the podcast. So people have become to contact me, you know, through email and, and different ways. Um, just feel free. Coach Jim at RooneyBaseball.com or even on the Facebook page, Rooney Baseball. Any questions, any clarification that's needed, 
any thoughts that you'd like to add and discuss with me, just feel free, drop me a line or drop Dave a line, make contact. Um, hopefully I can answer and help you out. And it might even lead into different topics that we discussed in upcoming podcasts. Yeah. And that's what it's about. It's about that communication that you exhibited throughout this podcast with your coaches. You made that great basketball analogy about, you know, people have that trench warfare syndrome where they're afraid to put their head out of the, and, and I guess they're scared it's going to get shot off. They don't want to make decisions. So hopefully our audience that listens to this, they're, you know, we don't force them to listen. 54,000 and climbing right now, 74 countries, grassroots MLB front offices. Jim is arming you with the necessary information to do your own work, to create your own confidence, and then hopefully you create competent pitchers out there and athletes. So, Jim, thanks so much for a great show today, episode 326 with Toe the Rubber, another phenomenal effort on your part. And we look forward to, to next week and, and um, we'll see a lot of world series baseball coming through. So as long as the Rangers aren't on, I'll, uh, I'll chat with you a little bit offline about some of the stuff I'm seeing and, and get some insight for my boys. Sounds good, Dave. We'll all right, talk you. to you all next week. All right. Have a great day.